This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's take a minute to talk education. Take stock of some things because this would have been the start of March break. But we're not seeing that. It is... April break, and we had that confirmed on Friday that they are still looking at an April break in this province. And so both boards are involved with that. Now, in terms of the last year and some of the challenges that have existed in education, and there have been an awful lot, think about children transitioning from preschool to kindergarten what if they haven't been to preschool and what challenges might exist because that can be a big leap and you tend to get to kindergarten anymore it's almost like sports where you don't come to training camp to get into shape you don't go to kindergarten without knowing a few things that kindergarten's already going to teach you so what happens next year and how big an issue is this joining us right now is annie kidder who's the founder of people for Edu- education annie thanks so much for being with us hi hi mike thank you for yeah. having me yeah let's kind of look at, at before we go over maybe a broader picture of the past year how much of a concern should it be that various preschools have not really been able to operate as they normally would? And a lot of kids who would go to nursery school or preschool or even certain daycares are not getting that experience, not getting the education that that would bring before they go to kindergarten in the fall. Is, is that an issue at all? Well, yeah, I think it's an overall, it's one across Canada. It's one the federal government has been talking about, and I think it has been for, you know, it feels like a gazillion years in Canada, but that's probably not true, um, where we continually sort of talk around the issue of does everybody have access to high-quality uh, child care, early learning and care, and should they? Yes, I think the evidence is pretty unequivocal. If we look at Quebec, for example, which has you know, universally accessible, very, very low-cost childcare. It's had a huge impact on everything, the economy, women being going back into the workforce, and on kids, you know, sort of ready for this for the next step in school. I think it's important, I would argue, that it's not about, like, winning the race necessarily, but it is definitely about trying to make sure that as many children as possible are um, are as prepared as possible for learning in all the ways that are important. And I mean, if we look at, for instance, full-day kindergarten in Ontario, the things that they point to that where it makes a really big difference are the kind of underlying skills, we call them the new basics, which is, you know, can do you understand how to have relationships? Can you collaborate? Do you listen? Can you figure out, and this goes to, you know, whether you're at the water table or pretending to build things with blocks all the way up to um, you know, things you learn in high school, but can you take what you've learned in one place and apply it to another? These are all foundational skills, communicating. And these are part of the the skills that are built um, early, early, early. And it's a way of kind of leveling the playing field, as you said, so that, you know, everybody's coming and ready to learn. Now, it doesn't mean we're in a disaster, I don't think. Definitely this year has had an impact in all different ways, but we definitely need to be paying attention to 
pre, post, during the pandemic, whether or not we've done enough to make sure that everybody has access to good quality early learning and child care. Andy Kidder joining us, founder of People for Education, as we look at kids who are going to be making some of those big steps. And there are those foundational moments in school, whether it's mastering reading and writing or whether it's mastering mathematics or laying that foundation for high school how do we go about assessing this on the fly annie well i think it's a good question but i think it's really important again that it's also mastering putting your coat on and i i mean that you know sort of metaphorically and also literally so it's impo- it's really important that we don't use the pandemic as an excuse to just focus on the old basics because we know now if we look at the world and if we look at even if we're just looking at jobs uh, the kinds of skills and competencies that are needed to to thrive in this rapidly changing world they are not the three R's. I, you need those. There's no question. But you need a lot of other skills, uh, you know, and being able to think, you know, creatively and critically, being able to, um, you know, understand yourself and other people. And these are, you know, these skills are important. And and I think that the thing that we tend to do is not recognize, you know, there was that book, slightly as a joke, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. That's actually still true because those are foundational skills. So they're not necessarily connected to whether or not you can count or do math, but they're connected to whether or not you can learn. You know, can you can you kind of operate in the world so that you're able to learn and able to have all of the kind of those it's those underlying competencies that are important that make you ready to learn all those other things. In Kids being online for portions of last year and at times this year, do you think that there is any danger that that we've missed out on stuff at the elementary level that, that may lend itself to that learning or foundational component? Oh, probably. I mean, I think, you know, everybody's including, you know, really old people like me. I think we've all missed out on a lot. I don't think that it's necessarily they've missed out on some piece of learning that they're not going to get later that's absolutely essential for everything else. So learning happens on a continuum. And hopefully, pretty soon we're going to hear about funding. So it's really important that we've got lots of resources in place, not just to make sure they, you know, learn their times tables, but to make sure that we're offering all of the different kinds of supports that are needed in order to get everybody back on track. So I don't think it's the end of the world at all. I think for some kids, it's been much, much harder than others. And there definitely has been, you know, what people are calling learning loss. And we definitely have to make sure that we're we're being aware of it. But that will happen with if we give classroom teachers and principals and schools enough time and kind of space um, to to be able to work on this over the course of the spring and into the fall. But we have to make sure that the support is there to do that. And we can't just keep sort of cramming in more and more and more. We can't look at this as, okay, we've got to catch up on everything in a month that would have taken six months. It, that's not what how learning works. So it's going to take time. Um, we have to pay attention to kids' mental health, which has also really been affected by the pandemic. So there's a, there's definitely a lot to do, but 
Um, I don't think that any of the loss is, um, you know, irrevocable. Good. That that at least is, is very, very soothing to hear in all of this that is not overly soothing. Annie, before we let you go, is there anything else that you notice over the past 12 months and going back over what's happened in education that stands out to you? Well, I guess, you know, two things at the same time. The incredible sort of resilience in the system where people were figuring out on the fly how to make this work. And, you know, boards doing amazing work, principals, teachers, support staff, everybody in there trying to make it work. So that was incredible. But also the amount of, I mean, we just surveyed all the principals in the province. So they, the amount of stress on the system was also very big. So I think we what we saw and continue to see because it hasn't ended yet um is is everybody tr- for the most part obviously there's going to be some people that didn't but for the most part trying to make it work but we also can't avoid the fact that um it, that this is going to have a lasting impact so that we have to keep paying attention to um all of the all of those impacts we also can't talk about going back to normal hopefully we've learned tons about online learning and different ways of doing things that and that that learning we're going to keep as we go forward Annie, it's always a pleasure to speak with you and get your thoughts on things really appreciate the time stay safe okay thanks a lot you too Bye-bye. that's Annie Kinner founder of people for education so yeah when you look at it as being Okay, they've missed out on some formative years at certain ages. Yeah, okay, that that's fine. You may have missed out on some information. Can you bring in the foundation of learning? Because the information can be done. You've got to assess and go with it on the fly. But in terms of how much students have learned, how much they, they may need a refresher on, those sorts of things. But overall, you know, it comes down to creating those foundations. And part of that's done at home as well. There's got to be that cooperation. All right, let's move on to something that we aren't experiencing yet, but we will be experiencing. We mentioned Israel last half hour and some of the things that are going on there. They have a case that has now gone to the Supreme Court based on the fact that someone who doesn't want to be vaccinated is not allowed to do certain things, and that there is a divide in their society bigger than the one that existed before with regard to those that have been vaccinated and those that have not. Joining us right now is Dr. Thomas Cook, Privacy, Ethics, and Internal Threat Assessment Manager and a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow, both at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University. Dr. Cook, how are things? Hey, not bad. I'm a little tired of seeing the Leafs um, not finish, but <laughs> this is a know. good thing. This is a good. This is always what? a good thing. If you win and you win and you win and you never have to go through anything, you never galvanize and you're susceptible at a later time. Lose games now, galvanize, get going. This this is perfect for the Leafs. You know, Mike, coming from someone who's seen a lot more hockey than me, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> That's all I've got. I'm not. I can't a make a prediction. Although, this call. <laughs> here's the thing. I, I. This is not a prediction because all my predictions go wrong. So, Leaf fans, don't worry about that. It's not a prediction. But I had a dream not too long ago, and that dream saw the Leafs celebrating, and and there was this big feeling about it that there was this big celebration. I don't know what it was, 
But the goalie in net was Jack Campbell. This I can get on board with. He he's mm-hmm. very consistent, and the the vibe that he brings to that locker room is incredible. I mean, I have never seen a goaltender celebrated that much by a hockey team at that level before. Uh, you probably have elsewhere, but like I I feel what you're saying. I think there's something there. Maybe, maybe, and I have had a dream come true before where I've dreamt something and then, then it has taken place. Now, you could call that coincidence. Now, that's that's nothing that we are getting to today. We did not come together to talk about dreams and Maple Leaf uh, unsuccessful runs. It's not really a losing streak, but uh, it hasn't been going as well as Leaf fans would like. We are here to talk, actually, vaccination passports. When you look at whatever it is that we're going to need to show that, hey, we have been vaccinated because we know the vaccines are not 100% perfect, so you're not necessarily protecting everybody around you just by being vaccinated. We're going to need what they're using now in Israel and other countries. We're going to need to show proof that we have this. From a privacy standpoint, Dr. Cook, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on where this will sit and and just how big a deal this is. How big a deal, first of all, do you think it is? It's huge. It's really hard to um, conceptually grapple what's at stake here because primarily mike because i I don't know what the 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 vehicle or the medium of delivery is going to be so for for example as i'm talking to you now excuse me i've got google image search up and i look up covid passport and you know there's only a handful of places in the world that are doing this right like iceland and israel i think are the ones that are coming up in most conversations today and what i'm seeing in in the google image searches is, is like pictures of passports right like you're Canada physical passport. Uh, and I think this is really, really significant from a privacy perspective. And here's what I mean by that. We're not talking about a piece of paper that declares that you are proven to, to not have COVID. This is not a proof certification. This is a passport. And what does a passport do for you? It allows you to move from one space governed by one domestic entity at the international level to pass through international space and then enter into another domestic territory. So what we we end up having to think about then from a privacy perspective is, is what's going to go into that passport. So we have the first instance where the government is potentially going to issue you permission, not proof, but permission to move from space to space without restriction. But also if that piece of of proof is going to be on your phone or if it's like a thumb drive or I don't know some RFID thing you know like a little rice grain size chip inside of a card that you wave at a a a technology inside of a pole at a gate or something like that what's going to be in that that data I think there's tons of precedent in Ontario alone to be concerned about this if you're a citizen because what counts as COVID-related data these days seems to be anything. How people talk about COVID on Twitter, how they share, how they're feeling on Facebook, whether or not they had seen a mental health therapist. I mean, the Ministry of Health looks at all of this and they say that's relevant. So the conversation about what's going to be on a passport in in terms of your health data and otherwise is, is going to be an unprecedented thing that we're going to have to talk about as a society, and that makes me very nervous. 
Dr. Cook, what about the fact that you may have to do the things that you suggested in order to gain entry to somewhere? It's one thing to be, say, working at a workplace, and many people will you know start working and you are given a pass card and you swipe at a door and that gives you access to entry or to enter at that door and that's that's just kind of that's work you know that's and we take that and we show our little pass card and you get the little boop and the door unlocks and off you go that that's very common anymore because of security issues if you've got 12 doors in your building and you only have a reception desk at one what are you doing with the 11 other doors so that's an example but what about when it is just accessing things that we've always been able to access can you just ask for people to have to show that is there any precedent for that <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, there, there's going to be some historian or, or legal scholar listening to this, and they're going to tell me, how did you not think of this example? And you'd be absolutely right. I'm sure there are precedents where, you know, people try to pass through borders and are told no. But I mean, those are generally places, places that you pass through that are kind of self-evidently security related, and they're built up that way, right? Borders. So there, there's your answer, historians and legal scholars. Like when you go to the border, there is a, a wide system of checks and balances and risk measurements that are automated and sometimes involve people. You can thank the NSA and the United States government for doing that. Thank you very much. Homeland Security, we salute you as well, CBSA. I hope you're listening. They, they are rapidly and immediately invested in this idea that you are a risky person. Whether or not you are Mike Stubbs or Tommy Cook doesn't matter. You are a subject of a government, a state. And as a, a member of that population, your risky le riskiness level needs to be uh, determined through these processes that determine whether or not you are, in fact, and in turn, safe to come into that country. But what's really significant about that process, despite it being exceptionally political, especially if you are not white, if you are part of uh, a black, Asian, or minority ethnic community, is that these systems are designed in a way that works against you. Unfortunately, the system is not built for you. But that still depends upon a calculi or calculi that determine a certain level of riskiness. And that level of riskiness is usually translated in government to a scale or a percentage. For example, the NSA uses the foreignness factor. When they're trying to figure out whether or not someone should visit the U.S., if they're from a blacklisted country under the Trump administration, for example, in the Middle East, if a system determines that you are 51% too foreign to American democracy, you weren't allowed in. Why am I bringing this up? The reason being is because when we go to pass through more innocuous spaces, there is no mitigation factor here. There is no interpretation of risk. You are either safe or you're not. Because that's the discourse we're living in right now, isn't it? You either have COVID and you are not safe or you don't have COVID and you are safe. That's a binary justification. That's a binary interpretation of safety. And when you start mixing that up with health data, sensitive information about somebody's life, you justify to the government or the, just, the government justifies to itself that it doesn't need to interpret risk anymore. It's either yes or no. And you can't negotiate that. So now we start talking about you know, go back to how the, the pandemic has disproportionately affected black, Asian, minority ethnic communities. We can talk about socioeconomic inequalities. Imagine a single parent with their child and 
they can't afford the vaccine living in the U.S. All of a sudden, you're not allowed to go to sporting events, or you're not allowed to go to certain doctor's offices, or you can't go to the mall. I mean, there are real problems here. When we start thinking about the COVID passport with the data they carry, inequalities in the spaces we may not be able to access, all based upon binary logic. That is really, really dangerous to me. So government needs to slow down, listen to this radio chat, and we need to have these conversations at dinner, or I think we're going to be in some real trouble here, Mike. And that's just it. You use two words that no one wants governments to use. You use the words slow and down. No one wants to slow down. They, Hey, I've got to be protected. But then what does that mean? Where, where do we go from there? And throughout this pandemic, how many times have we said, okay, well, we need this, we need this. And there's no forethought following that particular, you know, junction. You get to a junction, okay, we're there. But now what? Uh, we don't know. And then you make it up and you hurdle toward the next junction. And well, now what? Uh, don't know. Just a second. We'll get back to you. That's, that's really interesting because we're not going to get a discussion, I don't think. Well, we didn't get one with biometrics, and that's something that has concerned an extremely well-known, very established scholar in London here, Dr. Benjamin Muller, who is a a professor of political science at at King's University College. He's a friend of of your segments in the past, and he's a a close colleague of mine, and him and I literally had this conversation uh, before I came on to chat with you today, Mike, and and that's precisely what he said. I remember a time where uh, Dr. Muller was invited to give expert testimony um, to a standing committee on immigration and border control. I think it would have been under, I'm not even going to pretend to know which government it was, I apologize, but the, the, the issue of the day was, you know, we're a few years out from September 11, 2001, and the Canadian federal government is toying with this idea of bringing in a new technology that will help manage riskiness level with moving bodies in the world of the war on terrorism. And that technology was called biometrics. And what they did was they raced towards biometrics and they didn't have a conversation about it. And the number of issues that racing towards biometrics has caused for non-white men is still being studied today. It's put people on no-fly lists. It's led to accidental arrest and detention. It has prevented people from getting health care in the U.S. It is awful. And so even if in 2021 we're still trying to understand the social consequences of biometrics inappropriately being used in 2006, you might imagine the kind of conversation that people like Dr. Molinar are going to be having uh, in the years moving forward because of this COVID passport, Mike. Boy, oh boy. Well, thank you for following it as you have, and thanks for raising this issue, Dr. Cook. All the best, and please keep safe. My pleasure. Have a great week, London. That is Dr. Thomas Cook, Privacy, Ethics, and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University and also a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral. We are now going to talk about not a return, but an arrival. We want to welcome someone to London as they arrive in London to take over a very prominent position, one that you hear from on a very regular basis. Joining us right now is Graham Henderson, who is going to be taking over from the soon-to-be-departing Jerry McCartney as the CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce. Graham, thanks so much for being here. How are things? (laughs) Well, things are great. 
You're making me laugh. Uh, I got to say that I've had the most friendly, kind, welcoming, you know, welcome to London that you could possibly imagine. So that's great. <laughs> well, you know what? That's what we're all about. I hope you. I hope yeah. you don't get used to that because that's not going to stop. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. Overwhelmed by love. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, it is great to know that you're going to be here and heading up the London Chamber of Commerce. Let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us sure. kind of what your background is in getting to this position. Well, you know, I've spent most of my working life uh, in the music world. I first was uh, an artist lawyer, artist side, so I represented all sorts of recording artists all through the 90s. Then um, I uh, sort of switched teams, joined Universal Music, uh, which is the biggest record company in the world. I worked in the Canadian office doing uh, digital. Um, we, we were launching all of the very early digital delivery systems. So I got a lot of experience on that tech side. And then I joined the uh, Trade Association, which represented um, Sony, Warner, Universal, the big three record companies. But we also did an enormous amount of research on the importance of music in, in people's lives, uh, to communities, uh, to, for, for, the, for, for, for kids uh, with music education. So we like to think that we were not interested in just the narrow issues, but in broader issues uh, that um, affected the entire ecosystem, not just the music one, but how music fitted into the whole community. So that's, that's my background. But, you know, in there, Mike, I was also very anxious to bring the music story to the bigger community. And way back 15 years ago or so, it dawned on me, you know, one of the best ways to do this, Graham, Chambers of Commerce. Get into that business network because there's a network all across the province, large, small, big communities, you name it. Get in, get stuck in. So I joined the Ontario Chamber of Commerce um, and got on the board. And I was there for 12 years. Uh, I retired as the past chair a couple years back. And man, Mike, did I feel a hole. <laughs> you know, it was just like, it's such an incredible community of, of people who care about their community and want to make it better. And so I kind of missed it. And then when I left, Music Canada, that trade association uh, last summer, you know, I was sort of casting around, what do I want to do? And then Jerry retired, you know, and I was gobsmacked. Um, and I applied. And here I am. <laughs> That's excellent. Graham Henderson joining us, new CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce. So in coming to London, I mean, how much do you know about the old Forest City? Well, uh, as it turns out, a little more than you might expect. Um, my folks retired there in 1988 or something and, uh, and lived there until they passed on. So I was a regular visitor practically, I'd say, almost every weekend. But just as importantly, um, my brother moved there um, in the early 80s. And, you know, I think we all in our lives, we have somebody who's like super important to us, whether it's a mother or a child or a friend, whatever it is, who lives, you know, a city away, a continent away, sometimes a, a world away, and you only get to see them every now and then. And that was me and my brother, my best friend, for our whole adult life. And so I was always down there, right, constantly visiting, getting into the, you know, the vibe of it. But now, 
the, the, the big benefit for me is I get to be near my brother. So in addition to this glorious community that you have, um, with, uh, with all of the, the things that I've got to know, and it's not everything, I got my brother. So I'm starting to really look forward to this. Graham Henderson joining us, new CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce. So, Graham, when you look at the role of the Chamber yeah. of Commerce, you've obviously been able to see how everything yeah. has worked and have that experience. Where do you see this playing the biggest part in the community? Well, you know, I'm stepping into some very big shoes. And i got to tell you that while I was on the Ontario Chamber board, right, I looked to Jerry McCartney in London for advice, help, assistance. Uh, Jerry and I worked together on a number of things, which included, by the way, laying the very early foundations so that uh, London could attract the Junos. Um, So I had a long history there, and what I did know was London Chamber of Commerce is the gold standard. I mean, it's got 1,000 members. It's financially healthy. Um, You know, it's, it's got amazing volunteers, an incredible, young, diverse board, gender balance. Um, so, you know, it's not like I'm coming into a place that needs a lot of work. I'm coming into a place that is already really functioning at a very high level. You know, and they're, you know, in terms of, you know, take, take op- operational excellence and governance, gold standard. Leading in business advocacy, gold standard. Um, strengthening and growing, you know, you know it's, 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 been some, it's been an organization that's always done that. Um, and then the most important one, I think, is delivering premier connection opportunities, networking opportunities for local businesses. So I think I have to build on that, Mike. Absolutely. Now, in terms of coming into a position where here we are in a pandemic and yeah. we know the damage that has been done to yeah. business, when do you start to assess what has happened there so that you can help to move forward from it? Yeah, I think it's a bit, that's a tricky, tricky question, and I don't think that there are necessarily easy answers. Clearly, the goal is to build back better. Now, one of the lessons I learned in music was the importance of working together. And in fact, the Chamber of Commerce has a, has a, a sort of a catchphrase for that, stronger together. My view is that... Um, coming out of a pandemic like this, which has forced us apart, that chamber-type activities, which bring us together, which offer networking opportunities, safety nets, advice, training, they are going to be critically important. And I think the other thing that we have to remember is, while some businesses have really suffered, others seem to have done rather well. And then into this mix is going to be this sort of what I think of as a pent-up energy. People are going to want to come barnstorming out of this. And, you know, in the music world, um, we were looking at, you know, people are just dying to get back into a pub. They're getting – or Massey Hall. I watched a concert in New Zealand, which took place on the weekend. There were thousands of people now on – and, and bands on stage. Like I looked at it, and it was just like, how, oh my God, <laughs> you know, and everybody's yearning for that. So 
my feeling, Mike, is that the chamber can be the perfect, um, you know, stepping stone or gathering place to provide advice and assistance, focus, right, and and perhaps uh, do some pathfinding for old businesses that have been struggling, existing businesses that have thrived, and then these new businesses that I think are going to start popping up all over the place. And. Do we know, I mean, we've got a great tech sector here. Yep. Do we know if people are going to be, want to be moving around and, and looking for for different spots to create other yeah. parts of their business? Do, do you see that happening based on just the way that we've been communicating, the idea that, hey, we can I mean, do a lot remotely, but at the same time, business doesn't have to discover its own backyard. You could, you'd do it all over the place. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the secret sauces of the, of the London Chamber. I mean, it's always provided um, sort of excellent opportunities for, um, you know, outreach, for, uh, you know, trade. Um, and so I, I think that, that you know, we'll, we'll be able to help there. Um, but it's, it's also just a question of, um, you know, getting, getting folks into the right frame of mind. Um, because we've really been, you know, kind of beaten down. Um, I'm sure you feel it. I feel it. And, and, you know, we need to find some sort of inspiration. And I believe, right, one of the things about London, I, I, we, we, we had sort of invented this music cities concept, Mike, did a lot of study about the importance of music to communities and what it can do. And there are a couple of shining examples around the world of small community, smaller communities that have taken music and it's catapulted them to the front ranks of a lot of different uh, fields. And one of them is Austin. Austin's used its music community, which is very vibrant, to become a tech capital. Because one of the things about a vibrant downtown, which music can contribute to, uh, is it keeps younger people in the community longer and it attracts businesses. I spoke to the governor of Texas, Rick Perry, way back when, who said, there's a reason that Austin got the F1 race. It was because of our music scene. Now, when I look at other communities around the world, and we studied this and studied this, London looks to me most like that. It has all of these incredible building blocks. And man, am I itching to get in and try and help build. Well, love the enthusiasm and the passion already, Graham. It's been great getting to know you, and I know we'll be talking in the future. So good luck uh, getting here and, and getting set up. And remember, we keep being friendly long after you've arrived. Yeah, Mike, I can't tell you. It's been so great so far. I'm looking forward to it, and thank you for inviting me on. All the best and keep safe. You, you too. Bye. Bye. That is Graham Henderson, new CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce, as Jerry McCartney and Graham kind of do a, a switch over, and Jerry will be heading off to new challenges, and Graham will be taking over the reins. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.